This is it. The putt to win the tournament. If you sink it, the championship is yours. But on your backswing, your hat falls over your eyes. Is this how you're running your business? Poor visibility because you're still relying on spreadsheets and outdated finance software? To see the full picture, you need to upgrade to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system to power your growth. With visibility and control of your financials, inventory, HR, planning, budget, and more, NetSuite is everything you need to grow, all in one place. With NetSuite, you can automate your processes and close your books in no time while staying well ahead of your competition. 93% of surveyed businesses increased their visibility and control after upgrading to NetSuite. Over 27,000 businesses already use NetSuite. And right now, through the end of the year, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind financing program to those ready to upgrade at NetSuite.com slash C-Suite. Head to NetSuite.com slash C-Suite for special end-of-year financing on the number one financial system for growing businesses. NetSuite.com slash C-Suite. Welcome to C-Suite Radio. We all tell ourselves stories of who we are and why. But we forget that we have the power to define them. That no idea grows from mewling striped cum to teeth at your throat tiger. Without a little help, some guidance and a whole lot of love along the way. I'm Jared Surf, and this is Here Be Tigers. We often talk on the show about how and when things begin, so I thought it would be useful today to discuss where they end, when all the truths of your tale lead to a certain place, when all the work that you do helps folks to arrive where they'd like to, in their work, in their life, in their play, and in a better state. What makes an ending good makes it right, makes you and your market, audience, or tribe feel like you've arrived, that this here is fine. At the end of the journey, that together you'll take in your time. One, that it's clear. Two, inevitable, and most important, that you know why. So join us today as we talk about endings, what makes them satisfying, and how even the change of a beat at the right time can delight. Hi all, I'm Jared Surf, writer, strategist, and your storytelling guide at Here Be Tigers, and here with me today is I am David Herman, a.k.a. Ramnesis of the Brothers Herman, and a host of Otter Worlds. A while back in season one, we talked about where to begin your tale, fiction or not. And I thought today it might be interesting and fun to discuss endings or the end instead, because it's the last thing that you and your market audience or tribe are left with. They're what takes you and them from where you've been with what you provide, be it the service, the tale, whatever that story encapsulates, right, to where they'll hopefully arrive. We're going to talk mostly fictional tales today, though the same rules apply. You want clarity, inevitability, and, most importantly, a clear sense of why. Above and beyond that, though, and I think this is something we'll discuss tonight, we'll want some realization, sense, or understanding of how this has helped you, your market audience or tribe, and this applies whether you're a creative entrepreneur or creative entrepreneur alike, your market audience or tribe to reach toward a better life. 
The story ends, yes, but where do we, once you've given it to us, arrive? Dave, I know you and I have probably watched <laughs> far too many movies, played too many games, and read a ton of books, all of which must, by their nature, come to an end. I know Nick in our last episode talked about sci-fi in particular and how too many of them in his mind veered toward the, le- the bleak, right? He said it's in his, in his state, it's too easy for us to have an ending that is both unsatisfying, it's still an end. Do you find that true in your experience from what you've read, from what you've seen? Well, I think the the, the issue uh, that we often have is that that uh, the unsatisfying ending is is usually also not good. And you think <laughs> that would be the same thing, but it's not. A lot of times an ending is unsatisfying due to like technical difficulties or artistic difficulties or something did not gel. It's kind of the same way that a joke bombs. You don't land on the right beat. You let it run too long. You don't have the proper timing. Exactly. Something's just missing from the moment it arrives. As opposed to ones that end on a deliberately bleak note, because that's where the story goes. And there is a, an element of, oh, well, this is appropriate. This is... <laughs> it is inevitable, about, right? Compare your um, end of Star Wars to end of Empire Strikes Back. Here you've got a, a hopeful ending and a bleak ending, mm-hmm. but they're but you know not only is Empire Strikes Back considered to be a good ending, it's actually considered to be the better of the two movies. Why do you think so? One, do you, as someone who's appreciated the franchise and the whole, enjoy Empire Strikes Back more as an ending? Among other things, I, I think the idea is because it's good to see the heroes lose sometimes. The, the especially on the first one, the first one ended on such a high note that you kind of have to reestablish that the threat is still there. And indeed, a, was a lot more of a threat than you thought. So in that sense, because the Empire Strikes Back is not the end of the whole, of the end of that journey with those characters in this initial, in the original trilogy, but rather the midpoint, the, I don't enjoy using the Aristotelian model, but we'll use it here. I have my qualms, but Essentially, The Empire Strikes Back is what tips us into the denouement at first. We're reaching the climax, They've, which is amusingly also the nadir here, right? It's the, the peak of the story in the, big, in the full trilogy is also the point at which the heroes are entirely at a loss. They thought they won, they thought they pushed back, they thought they defeated, but the opponent, the Empire Vader, resurges and takes everything and more, right? Absolutely. But keep in mind, yes, in that set of, set of movies, it really only works because there's the possibility to still come back and win the day. We wouldn't really enjoy a movie that was just about people fighting against an evil empire and then the empire winning. That would be Dark Star. However, if you take a look at like classic stories like the, the Twilight Zone, Outer Limits, and that kind of thing, there were a lot more comfortable with the story ending on a sour note. I almost feel, and you can tell me if you agree with this, that the Twilight Zone occupies the same space that Grimm's fairy tales and other parables like it do. They don't necessarily need to have a good ending because they are short, they're concise, and there's a a moral or a lesson they're trying to impart to us that allows us to be better than we were before. The story might not end in a great place, but hopefully we end in a better one. Or in the case of Outer Limits, it ends with a kick to the gut because they enjoy it. Uh, because it's not always a moral lesson. Sometimes it's like, hey, you know, you don't always win. Or this goes back to the idea of catharsis. It's easier to suffer a simulated loss, failure, death, absence, pain, than it is to live through it in actual life. 
So in that case, the narrative, even if it doesn't have a moral point to it, has an emotional offer, a promise to it. You're not going to have to live through this awful thing in your own life, or if you do, you've already lived through it once, so you've allowed yourself to see how you or a character would navigate that experience. As Nick argued, it's a lot more work to go into finding an ending that is reasonably hopeful, not necessarily, say, triumphant or triumphalist. Everything's fine and perfect. There is no ontological inertia. You unseat the king and everything goes back to flowers and sunshine, right? As Mm -hmm. usually the Disney logic, the villain gets usurped and everything goes back to better or even, or goes back to good or even better, right? And that's that's fairy tale, often the logic there. There's a kind of a magical rationale as to why things shift so quickly one way or the other. The idea of reasonable hope, that yes, the Empire in the, say, the case of Star Wars has been defeated, that in Battlestar Galactica, not all of us made it, but we made it, right? We found Earth. We're not going to arrive at Earth, the people we were, but we found Earth. We said we did what we set out to do. It may not be what we wanted it to be or why we wanted it to be. It may not even have arrived the way we wished to have, but we did find the thing we set out to find. Mm-hmm. However, those are perhaps too broad a way to speak of endings, because most endings have a note of bleakfulness or hope to them, but that doesn't tend to encapsulate the entirety of it, right? I When we saw Jojo Rabbit... Uh, yes. <laughs> so for those of you who are not familiar, Taika Waititi decides to do a semi-surreal, semi-comedic take on a child's imaginary friendship with youth group Hitler. Yeah, basically. It's comedic Hitler. Give him credit, he was like, I'm not making anyone else play this. No, he deliberately... and I. I remember we both watched it together. It was fascinating watching Watiti's performance because he he had to and did not shy away from performing the monster as the monster. Sometimes it was to comedic effect, but more so toward the end of the movie, it was not. Well, I think that's that's it. I think the comedic effect early on, sometimes he played him as a monster. Sometimes he played him as a confused boy because he's the imaginary friend of a confused boy. Right. Um, and... And early on, that's played to take you off your guard. And later on, as the main character separates more and more from his identity as, well, he thinks he's a Nazi. He's, as, as they point out in the movie, he's a confused boy. The, as the, that separates out more and more, his imaginary friend veers much more revealed darkness. I think as he has, tries to reconcile this image of his idol with the reality of the world the idol has created... Mm-hmm. it becomes impossible for him to reconcile those two beings because they're both imaginary to him. He's never met either of them in reality, but one does things that he doesn't agree with and he tries to, but cannot, particularly as he discovers his mother is hiding a young Jewish woman in their attic mm-hmm. and that she's been part of the resistance in some fashion for a long time. And her gentle ribbings of him are not just a, you know, endearing ribbing of him. They're, uh, kind of quiet until later on in the movie, not so much when she demand you know, when he demands that his father come back and she slaps some shoe polish onto her face, puts a hat and his coat on, and then berates him as his dad would. It's a funny but also dark and brutal performance. The ending goes into so the ending is the bombing of where are they in Berlin? Are they in Berlin? No, it's they're not. It's in. It's definitely like uh, so. It was the Americans that were rolling in, not the Russians. So (laughs) my dad would have a fit. We'll have it in the show notes. But the city there—it's toward the end of the war. So the city they live in is 
being occupied now by the Allied forces, they're going to lose this part of the battle here. And the Nazi forces left in the city go out to fight one last fight. And it is, how would you describe it, Dave? It is dark and there, and somehow like, like, and there's yet more surrealist comedy in there, which again is one of the reasons why the, the imaginary friend doesn't stand out in the movie and like for a long time, because real life is just as strange. The fact that the commandant is marching out there in this ridiculous set of regalia Mm -hmm. that we had seen an illustration of by his assistant as a a joke, a visual joke early on. And that was just assumed to be the man's wild fancy of what it would be like to do his one last grandiose fight. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think that what I took from it is because he is exceptionally disillusioned. Yes. He is very much aware that the fight is going wrong, that he's fighting for the wrong side, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and his his last act in the movie makes it clear he is very much aware of what his side was. He strips Jojo of anything signifying him as a Nazi sympathizer. And call and basically goes full Nazi, calling Jojo um, a young Jewish child, precisely so that the Americans won't look at him and realize that he's German. And so so... I wouldn't say like this was his, it, I, I didn't get the idea that it was his fantasy of, of what a one last charge would be like so much as a, if I have to do a one last charge, I'm doing it the way I, I would always want to. I want, there's a bit of life is beautiful in here with Roberto Benini. If I have so little control, I'm going to have as much power as I can as one moment left to me. If I have to sacrifice my life, I'm going to do it looking fabulous. Absolutely. And he charges forward with his battalion of German shepherds in their mm-hmm. shepherd outfits, because that is another very lame gag that comes again as a brick joke later on. And it shouldn't be. And I think part of what makes this ending work here is it's not time isn't spent calling attention to the gag. It's just there. He asked for German shepherds. He met the dogs. He got German shepherds. Mm-hmm. And it's just left there as part of the charge. It's also one of the few movies that highlights the fact that even when there is a battle going on, there's a lot of locations where that battle isn't. And so, you know, you constantly hear that phrase, you know, like a, a long periods of waiting and a couple brief seconds of excitement describing battles. And I really think this movie does a lot playing in that long periods of waiting. At the end, Jojo goes home having survived the battle. He's orphaned because his dad is long dead. His mother was hung earlier in the movie to retrieve his somewhat friend from the attic. But he first has to convince her that it's safe to leave the house. And it's so fascinating because the whole arc between them has been him working to gain her trust by no longer lying to himself or to her. And so he goes out on this one last, and it's more of a prankish sort of lie. Yes. Like a lie that he knows is going to be revealed in a few minutes. So it's literally just a, 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 a prank. And it's, one of the few jokes that's so deliberately set up as a joke and just isn't funny. But that's the point. It isn't funny. He failed to make the joke land. But then there's that moment. And honestly, for a movie as bleak as this movie is, and a movie where the main character loses everything, it's a very hopeful ending, precisely because where the character was through the majority of the movie is so very obviously in the dark. Uh, I don't mean in the dark as in clueless, although that part is true, too. I mean, in the dark as in he was laboring under a whole lot of misapprehensions and a whole lot of lies about who he was and what he wanted to be. And so at the end of the movie, despite the fact that he is physically left with nothing and no place to go and no one to rely on, 
he is out uh, from under that lie. That makes it definitionally a positive character arc. Well, not just that. As much as the joke he delivers to convince her to step outside, to be, you know, that we have to leave here to actually be safe. You're not safe here. I'm going to lie to you for a moment that it's safe so you'll step out and join me. And I know I'll be caught in this and it won't be funny. But it's his. It's JoJo being whoever JoJo is going to be as opposed to whoever JoJo thought he was supposed to be. Mm-hmm. And if he fails at that, that's unsurprising because he has no experience at it. Exactly. And that's, and so it's a hopeful ending. It's a it's a small little bit of hope, but it's the it's the note, the beat that the movie ends on. And because the arc itself, the narrative itself, is wo- interwoven between the surreal, the bleak, the hopeful, the moments of revelation that are funny and also quite dark. There earlier on is a moment where Jojo is interrogating the young woman to ask her for all the secrets she can divulge so that he can give the commandant something of value to prove his worth to the Nazis. He has this whole book he's illustrating of stick figures and Fran, to of secret, you know, of Jewish secrets that he think will thinks will be of great worth, and at one point he demands that she tell him where the monsters, the you know, the Yudin reside, and she's hesitant until finally she gestures for him to give her the book and the crayon. She starts meticulously drawing, and he's waiting very patiently because finally she's going to reveal the truth to him. And when she does, it's a picture of his skull with a hole in it and creatures crawling out. And she goes in your stupid head, mm-hmm. and that's. A scene, if we're going to talk about a little bit, you know, an ending within a larger film, the timing is essential there. If there's too much of the talking of the verbosity, if we don't let that moment of her drawing and being detailed and him so antsy in anticipation of finally I can prove myself, I've earned her trust, I can betray her and prove my worth. And she flips the script quite literally and says, no, you're being an idiot. And I don't accept this. And of course, we, the audience, are all waiting because we know that he hasn't convinced her in any way, shape, or form. Because again, it's all in his head. I remember the lie. He, she'd been receiving letters from her boyfriend, who everyone knows is dead, including her. Actually, that one was a shock in the movie. She knew he was dead, but we didn't know. And so we thought JoJo was playing a particularly vicious prank. And we knew that she knew yes. that he was writing the letters, but we didn't know that even if he had done a good job, she still would have known he was faking them. And I think that's part of what leads to the hope later, because there's such a desperate need that both of them have to connect to someone authentically and survive this somehow. Yeah, I do, I do, I do think to Nick's point, it, it would be so easy for that movie to be purely bleak, to have moments of surreality that still end in a moment of defeat. But... Well, I mean, I'm going to... Here's the challenge, then. If the idea is that it's harder to do a hopeful movie than a bleak one, then it should be easier to pick out movies with a bleak ending that we consider satisfying, sure. which is like a, a good bleak ending, versus, I mean, and then, then it is to pick out movies that have a good hopeful ending. I was talking with my friend Cheryl the other day, who was a former marine biologist, and I asked her if she'd ever seen The Life Aquatic, which is about a undersea explorer who decides to seek revenge on a claymation jewel-encrusted shark who has murdered his best friend. That sentence sounds ridiculous, doesn't it? Yeah. But it's played seriously. The fact that the shark is claymation and jewel-encrusted is one of those weird moments that only happens when you discover it in the depths of the sea and everything they've paid to arrive there to witness the majesty of the strange thing that no one else believes exists. There's a a similar moment earlier in the movie where he's convinced his ex-wife and his, his possible son he doesn't quite know 
because he's to accrue this ship, he has to find enough people willing to tolerate him still. Played by Bill Murray, of course, so he knows how to act this role. Mm-hmm. And but played earnestly and endearingly. And at one point, I think it's it's what the the turtle hatching on the sea, right? Where or some type of jellyfish washing up. It's been a long time since I've seen the movie, but it is a moment of surreal beauty that serves as a prelude and a foreshadowing to whatever the beast they find being. You know, this is effectively Moby Dick, but with a happier ending, because of course in Moby Dick he dies. Mm-hmm. The whale takes him down because it is God. You can't slay God. You chase him, he'll devour you because he's greater than you. So it's a fruitless cause. That is the moral we take away from that bleak story. Granted, this is the man who also wrote Bartleby the Scrivener, so we shouldn't be that surprised. I mean, I think you just put your, you, you basically just hit right there one of the, the classic league endings when you mentioned Moby Dick. I think particularly for that genre, you know, Frankenstein, for instance, the original, I'm not talking the movie or the book. I don't know if you'd consider that ending to have any hope in it. It depends on, um, it depends a great deal on hope for who. I suppose that's the question. Who do you identify as the reader with? If it's with the doctor, then no. Oh, definitely not. If, if it's, again, weirdly, I suppose there's a parallel to Jojo Rabbitier. If it is with the monster, Frankenstein's monster, then mm-hmm. like Jojo, he finally has the chance to be free of his creators. The only question is, will he be? But that's a story for another day. Right, and we don't need to know the answer to that, ultimately. That's the ending of this of this journey he's gone on, and we can choose to take what we want from that. The, the, I mean, the overall point of Frankenstein is the doctor tried to use science to take a power that was not his. I believe Mary Shelley is on, uh, on record as, as having said that what he tried to steal was the feminine power of life hmm. um, that, he, uh, that, that he could not have. So what he got out of it was unsatisfying. It was life, but it wasn't his. It wasn't something that he could be proud of. It wasn't something that was that he could control. You know, it's funny. There is a lot of magical realism to the horror and romanticism of that era. You get a little bit of like that fey logic with Nathaniel Hawthorne that starts to veer into the cosmic horror later on. Mm-hmm. Let's say Rappuccini's daughter, where the man just made things poison, including people. And the only thing that could cure Someone who encounters them also kills the being made of poison because antidotes destroy poison. So if his daughter's poison, it kills her too. But she is free of his control. And I think this is a very interesting point because if you limit yourself to movies, you're going to have a very hard time finding good downer endings, good bleak endings. But literature is the other way around. I think the last movie I would suggest for now, because we'll delve into TV, this is a more recent one too, is Captain Fantastic with Viggo Mortensen. Uh, the basic premise here is he plays a man who decides to live Walden too. I'm going to take my wife, my children, and we're going to create a society outside of society that is pure and innocent and intellectual and brilliant and better than everything else. Not taking into account, for instance, that his wife has some type of severe mental issues that require institutionalization that she ultimately does not survive from, hence the beginning of the movie where they have to go retrieve her body and provide her the burial she wanted. And like with Little Miss Sunshine, where there is a bit of a comedic, a physical set of comedy in trying to transport a body across legal and state ethereal boundaries, the bigger challenge, which is issued ultimately by his father-in-law, Frank Langella, is that you cannot live outside the world you're in. You can pretend you are, but all you're doing is playing Peter Pan. 
and this is fine until something becomes so disastrous that you don't have in your limited power the means to either prevent it or resolve it. In trying to steal, I think, something for either the body itself or something from her father-in-law's house, one of his daughters falls off the roof of the house and breaks her leg. And that's the moment where he discovers, uh, you know, despite all the escapades and the shenanigans and the fun, and there's a lot of beauty and silliness in this too, that there is no, <laughs> no man is an island. You cannot have a tribe of one, of one family, of one unit. It is. It would be such a bittersweet way to end that movie, except they do steal the body. They give her the funeral, kind of a Viking pyre, sing Sweet Child of Mine a cappella. And then the movie ends with the three, the few of them living in a small house, kind of a cottage, growing a garden. But the kids go to school. They have their homework. They have their backpacks. They're in the world that they, he denied them before. And part of that had to do with him not giving them the choices that he had, right? Because he's, he, had, he, made the he made his choices based on what he had lived through and decided he never wanted his children to have those choices and therefore make the wrong decisions that he did beforehand, which is parenting, right? Well, yeah. <laughs> but I think it's, it's so fascinating because it would have been, again, so easy to push that toward a bleak ending. The daughter falls off. She breaks her leg. She's paralyzed. They don't get to retrieve the body. The grandfather takes custody of the children fully. There are so many ways that could have just ended on a crushing note. Why do you think it didn't, though? Again, I think it has a lot to do with the change in situation, the, the, the fact that they're in a different place at the end of the movie, that life continues. You were mentioning literature before, because I want to play off this note, that as in The Last Unicorn, when Schmendrick is asked, do you think the Princess Almathea, who was a unicorn, and the prince who saved her will have a happy ending? And Schmendrick replies, no. And she goes, what do you mean? He says, there are no happy endings because there are no ends. Life doesn't have a story to it. It just continues. And that is, that, that is the very often the unsatisfying endings are the one, or not the unsatisfying, but the, the bleak endings are the one where something has ended. Yes. Whatever it is, that stage is over. And it was not worth the cost. So um, Macbeth, there's a good example. Yes, it's it's over. Macbeth is dead. There is no more that that can come of it. Moby Dick, Captain Ahab is dead. Mm -hmm. The Sopranos. Yes. Well, that one, that one only works if you if like. And I do think there is enough written into it that 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 they strongly hinted at that you're supposed to interpret that as his death. And I think it's in an interview they basically confirmed that too but if you don't know that if you don't make that connection that's just an unsatisfying ending oh i could i i, I know from the people i've spoken to who have watched it endearingly up until that point for many of them that was the one thing in the show they hated above all else that it just ended but if you read it as a narrative from his point of view then of course the moment he dies it ends Exactly. And there were even conversations, I think, in the show. It's not a show I've, I've watched that much of, so Same. I only have this, this um, secondhand. But there were conversations in the show of what it would be like. You think it's just, like, gone? Right. Likewise with uh, Breaking Bad. He was asked, how long do you want the show to go to? And he said, until it ends and no more. There's a definitive end. That will be it, and there is no more. And when we received it, when we had this last stand of Walter White, there have been arguments as to, okay, is this a dream? Did he actually do any of this? Or was this just one last little vision trip of his, either from dying from an injury or from the cancer itself, that he went on 
to give him a self, you know, to give this incredibly self-centered man a sense of satisfaction in his last moments. Because he may have tried to embark upon this journey to redeem what he had left in the time he had, but at some point during that journey, right, the start of darkness, he made his choices to only satisfy what he wanted above all else. That's Othello, right? That's Iago going on his rampage. And at the end, uh, I think it's in the Kenneth Branagh interpretation, he watches the bodies go into the ocean and it was not worth it. So I think what we're getting what we're getting at here is I don't think it's easier to do a hopeful ending than a set, than a bleak ending or vice versa. I think that it's like you're more likely to find one or the other in, in certain works. I think you're less likely to get a budget greenlit for a movie to have a bleak ending. <laughs> I, I think given that so many of them have, say, with the Pirates of the Caribbean, tested their endings among multiple crowds, and then mm-hmm. the one that gets the 60-70% favored rating over 30-40-whatever becomes the, the official ending, right? Mm-hmm. I, I remember we sat down and talked with the writers in grad school about that when he said, no, that was, that was in fact a camel. It was the only ending most people liked. And by most, I mean more than 50%. Endings come down to, as we said before, three things. There has to be clarity. Even if the ending itself is ambiguous, it has to be clear it's the end. It has to feel inevitable. If it's not inevitable, then you're going to question why we arrived here. I don't think it has to feel inevitable, but it has to at least make sense. Because a a lot of endings subvert the inevitable, but they have to subvert it in a way that is... Right. It's self-workable. I suppose what I'm getting to is we we no longer, in fiction and nonfiction alike, appreciate the idea of deus ex machina, that something outside of space and time is going to set things aright. Well, it's lazy writing. The, the, the true deus ex machina is lazy writing at, at, at its worst because it comes from ancient Greek plays, where which were comedies of errors, where they got into such a mess writing-wise that they could not write themselves out of it. And so they had to basically invoke a deity coming down and setting everything correct, because that was the only way. We don't like it because it's like, in general, there's a lack of inventiveness. We, we do accept that lack of inventiveness and continuity in comedy, say sitcoms, for instance, because we expect things to not change by and by in order for the premises that make things funny to continue. Well, see, the interesting thing, you you mentioned sitcoms, but sitcoms usually, not always, but usually invoke a certain amount of, we're not going to remember this next week. Yes, You might get a slow bit of character progression over the course of seasons, but in general, you don't have major character moments. Like I can, I can't count that many sitcoms that have like, have really positive character progression. And those that do, you can't link it. You can link it to certain moments but it doesn't come straight from that moment. It's like, that's the moment it had to come from, 
But like the next episode forgot about that moment. So you don't really start seeing the writing change for a couple more episodes. And that's partly a, a factor of having long running show or long running shows having multiple writers, multiple teams, multiple production crews. The Simpsons, for instance, Simpsons, for instance, is veering towards season 32. It is yeah, almost well, as old the, as I am. <laughs> and the Simpsons is a classic example because they all they, they a lot of the time the stuff that happens is like even when it's impossible to continue on with the show as normal, they will reset it and come back. You know, I think I think um, Homer permanently has a crayon lodged in his brain, but it's never going to be mentioned again. Right. There are certain things that last. Lisa becoming a vegan and holding to that. The certain moral and ethical stances that become more important to characters over the seasons as they go by, too. And this, I think, is back to the point earlier of what I see inevitable. I mean, whatever has led to this moment, the truths about world story and characters, in fiction or not, in the process of following them from one to the other, how they lead to revelations about more whatever occurs as the ending should come from that. Mm. And you also have to have a clear sense of why that is the case. If Lisa is going to be a vegan, if Tony Soprano is going to die, right? You should, even if you don't enjoy that he died, even if you don't enjoy how in the portrayal of it, it just cuts to black, which suggests this whole thing has been his point of view with occasional ellipses into third person or omniscient, right? Oh, and let's throw in one other thing. The, the inevitability has to happen because of the characters. Yes. It can't happen despite them. That's why it's true about world story and characters. Mm-hmm. The example I would give is the movie Knowing, where <laughs> the vast majority of stuff that happened in that movie would have happened despite the characters. And I'm going to spoil it because, I, A, have we been spoiling things, and B, I don't care about spoiling that movie. Nicolas Cage will get you. Well, basically, the entire thing, it turns out that aliens are trying to collect these two kids that Nicolas Cage and co. are are protecting. They don't know why. Uh, and this entire mystery that he's been involved in ends up making him realize he need, the, the, that the aliens are after these two kids. Well, the thing is, if none of the mystery had happened, the aliens would have just gotten the kids. And the aliens get the kids anyway. There's no way of outmaneuvering them. He loses. But the consequences of his loss are the same whether he was involved or not. <laughs> his actions That's, don't matter. Yeah. The only thing, and I think if the movie had revolved around this plot element, it would have been a better movie. The only thing that changes is that there's this subplot about him being estranged from his father over religious differences and all of that kind of thing. And at the very end, after he's lost and bef before the world is completely evaporated because that happens too and i'm if anything i'm understating how bad it is evaporated yeah the, the solar flare yeah you haven't seen the movie have you i i do enjoy a nicholas cage movie but i have to be in the right state of mind for this it. isn't a good nicholas cage movie it okay is, yes then no <laughs> it's not a good movie and it's not a good nicholas cage movie uh, its own category because there are bad movies that are good Nicolas Cage movies. I believe The Color Out of Space is one of those rare ones that happens to be both a good movie and a good Nicolas Cage movie. <laughs> well, so in this case, yeah. in this case, if the estrangement, if the solution of like this, um, repairing the estrangement of his father, which happened just before the end, was like the main thread of the movie, then it would have been a good movie despite his loss. The loss would have just been a stepping stone to the major story. But because the major story was about figuring out this mystery, half the movie is even figuring out that they're, that the world is in danger at all. And, and what is going on, you know, with these aliens and all of that. 
if the, so the entire movie is all about this mystery and it leads nowhere because they're solving it does nothing. It changes nothing. You know, it's so fascinating. I, I know in the episode where we talked about where to begin, you and I discussed Near Automata, Final Fantasy 15, and Torment, all of which have very divisive endings. And people either love or despise them. In Automata, which has multiple endings for each of the arcs you go through, as well as a couple humorous or silly ones, we have two androids who are fighting a fight that humans have created them for well on past the time humans have expired in the fight versus aliens. The aliens, as you discover in the first arc, likewise have expired, and they've left only robots behind who have created all these similar craw of human societies based on what they've found lying around. All of those in turn, of course, of course, collapse because the robots program themselves to follow the way these societies worked, but don't have any sense of ingenuity outside of the framework they've put into themselves. So they always collapse repeatedly in the same way. The pacifists destroy themselves because they cannot deal they cannot either condone or rationalize the existence of violence in the world and the desire to live in a world where violence will never end. The feudalists go on a rampage when their king dies and they cannot revive him. All this is backdrop to inevitably what happens when the two main characters discover that the robots have evolved into two near-perfect proxima of humans, Adam and Eve, who are trying to figure out what humans are like and are deeply irritated and infuriated that you keep killing their kind. So, first arc, you lose one of your friends to Eve, the other main character, or to Adam, it's confusing to Adam. You fight, you kill him, and he finds in that moment this sense of thrill of actually trying to struggle to survive, that in the moment of dying, he discovered a purpose to existence. And it's sad, because it's mostly a nascent realization. He's barely begun to latch onto some purpose to exist, and he's dying. So, Ultimately, he will never share this with his brother, only his passing will be passed on to him. Eve, of course, hears about this because robots are on a network, goes on a rampage, and eventually you have to put him down at the end of the movie. The other companion, 9S, the one who's the curious, who asks all the questions, right? Eve nearly kills him, and you think you've lost him. You know, you are the warrior android, you've done everything with your helper friend, 9S, he's died to help you defeat the threat the world has saved, but at what price? And in the end of the final, of the, the end of the first arc, you're sitting there as the main character to be in the ruin, like Jojo, of everything you fought for. The city's gone, the robots are gone, the enemies are gone, the aliens are gone, the humans are gone. There's no reason to fight anything. Your whole purpose for existing is over. And you start seeing one of the robot's fingers twitches, twitch, because 9S, being the hacker that he is, transitioned his consciousness to the network. And there's this very kind of quiet, intimate moment that none of this matters because we still are alive. My existence has changed, but I'm here, you're here. There's no reason to have the fight anymore. We can try something different. That's the end of the first arc. There are more twists and tumbles and turns after that that I won't go into, but it's such a one-two punch of this beautiful, simple, I don't want to call it a reward, but relief from all of the angst and the horror and the realization that there was no purpose to anything they were doing outside of leaving the cycle behind. It's actually, it's karmic, right? Mm -hmm. The only point they're able to live their lives is when they step outside the cycle of retribution. And then, of course, the rest of the world is still in that, so it draws them back into the next arc. And a greater price is paid, more things are realized. But you, it's so fascinating because when you do finally confront the people who have continued to perpetuate this, their actual argument is, 
we would have no reason to exist if we didn't continue doing this. And the fact that this is not the first, as I said in the initial Where to Begin episode, when she loses 9S the first time in the prologue, you have this understanding that this is not the first time the two of them have been lost. Their memories together are not synchronous. She knows more about him than he does about her because he doesn't get uploaded in time. The second arc, as it is, is basically her trying to free him and herself from the system that doesn't want them to have an identity separate from the one designed for them. I can't call the ending of the series of the game itself a happy ending till the very ultimate one. And even then, it's, well, we've destroyed everything. The robots went off to populate a new Eden. And here's Earth. Your two robot people have fun existing on that because your two robot sidekicks have sprung themselves from their own pre-programming, developed their own intelligence, and decided to reassemble all of you and start a whole world over again. It's a, I don't even know if I should call it bleak, happy, ambiguous, or what, because to get to that ending, because this is a game, right? You have to go through so many trappings that are increasingly aggravating and frustrating. And here's the last one, right? Mm -hmm. When you get to the penultimate ending, you're given a choice. Do you delete everything you've done to help someone else get to the actual ending without knowing what it is? So do you give up your chance to see the true ending of the story so that someone else can't? Torment, by contrast, you're an immortal who has given up something to become that way. The main story is him trying to answer the riddle of what can change the nature of a man. He posed that question to a demon. She changed him so that he could find the answer. And ultimately, he does. Do you know what the answer is? Go for it. You take away his mortality. <clears throat> Through the entirety of the game, you're confronted with the actions of your previous incarnations. And because you are effectively immortal and keep rebirthing, you do everything. Beautiful, awful, horrifying, surreal, insane. There's no boundary to you because there's no punishment to your actions. Everything else suffers for them but you. So the final confrontation is with the mortality that's been stripped free of you that wants to have now its own existence outside of you because as long as the two of you are not together, you both are immortal. And you can fight it because, of course, it's a game. You can fight anything, ultimately. It's the final boss. Or you can rationalize or threaten with it into joining you again on one last hurrah. I don't remember the exact beats to the convincing it. Because threatening it is... The bleak ending is you threaten it. I can end myself and you in this one way so that neither of us exist anymore and therefore this whole endeavor was meaningless. But the hopeful one is more of an appeal to reason, which you wouldn't think would work on the monsters. Kind of, again, Frankenstein confronting the monster, right? I made you, I can unmake you, but do I want to? To bring this back around to, you know, and bleak versus hopeful, or if we even want to continue on that one, I really don't think we're proving one way or the other which one is easier. I, I, I think it's an interesting challenge and part of why we've been chewing on it for so long here. There are, of course, multiple valences beyond bleak and hopeful. There's oh, yeah. the ambiguous, there's the surreal, there's the bittersweet. Or, as you've mentioned before, the satisfyingly unsatisfying. Mm-hmm. Transistor, FF15, again, both bittersweet endings. They're inevitable. They're fatalistic. You see them coming. No one survives, but it also feels right. I think those are hard endings, right? To live through in our own lives and also to encounter. Mm -hmm. Because the only people who change are those who survive. Or you have the people who don't change that through it all. I mean, and, and ordinarily that's a bad thing, but there are the people with like, the, the, the whole element of that of them is that they don't change that they are they are on their path and hell or high water 
they're going to stay on that path. And all of the, and, and this is not a, hey, we didn't think of anything to do with this character. This is a, hey, this character is X, whatever X is. And we're going to challenge that all the time. And the character's not going to change. The character's going to refuse. That's very different from just not having a character arc. And so you have your Roland of Gilead, although to be fair, in his in his first book, you have your, your Roland of Gilead, who does not change. Would you say that applies to Mandalorian as well? I would not say that that applies to Mandalorian. It seems like it would be at first, but then you start to undermine it, right? Right. Well, the thing is, he, like, yes, he's got a path, but how he lives out that path definitely changes. And he is forced to change his tactic in regards to to the situation. Uh, and we're not really challenging, uh, especially not in the first season, we're not really challenging his identity. Well, no, we are, but we're not challenging like that aspect of his identity. We're not challenging the way, but we are challenging him in how he chooses to live out of the way. Part of what makes those stories so hard, whether they're a fictional piece we've created or something we are working through with someone we're trying to help through whatever we make, right? We all have encountered people who are resolute in their way, who do not wish to change. They just wish things to change around them. Mm -hmm. And they want help toward that. And sometimes the help is the realization that you too have to change or that things you want to change can't, but here are some that can. I think there's a, for me, Superman in that sense makes a better antagonist or a a force of nature than the main character in a story because he is effectively implacable for metaphysical reasons. He's going to go the way he goes. It's less interesting to watch his physical struggles and his internal or emotional ones at the cost of that. Well, yeah, that's why his that is why his most infamous villain is Lex Luthor, a guy with no powers, because it's not about challenging him on a power level. It's about purpose. Mm -hmm. What role do you serve as one of the people in this world? And that sense of identity and whether you live up to it and our expectations of it. That is a more interesting narrative for a character who is by and large invulnerable otherwise, because he still wants to live here and be with people he will outlive. Mm-hmm. In a lot of the fiction we see nowadays, there's this tend in fantasy and sci-fi to have, if, either, if not the implacable, then the near-invincible, nigh-invincible, the one who's just not going to suffer for things, or despite all of it, will still somehow come out unscathed. And I get the idea behind the fantasy of it, right? Yeah, you got to distinguish between the, the power trips that are absolutely they're unfazed, or the or the heroes who are absolutely affected by it but continue on anyway. Right, and I think part of what helps those kinds of narratives have a true definitive ending. What helps the people we serve, who are implacable, who are resolute, who wish to remain as they are or were, is to see what else defines them, to see what else is defined by them. You know, in the book I'm writing, Adam, by and large, survives everything. That's not the challenge to him. Right. He is mentally... Yeah. (laughs) Disaster isn't the word, but he is fraught. He is emotionally fragile. And people travel with him not to keep him physically safe, but to keep him grounded, keep him here, right? And present in the now. Because if he's not, whatever he does will be acting upon whatever he thinks is in that moment. And that's beyond their power to deal with. So the only way for them to 
to not get to that point. The only way for Superman to not become the threat, right? Not saying he is Superman, but and that seems as a parallel. The only way for the implacable thing, the force of nature, Luke in the Mandalorian, because people were angry when Luke cameoed in the Mandalorian, right? Mm. He basically well, arrives as the Vader. He is the force no one can defeat. He's going to be here. He's going to move. He's going to change things. It's going to happen. It's a hurricane, a flood, a tornado. It's there and it's done. Well, I mean, I, I do understand that one. I would say I would have a bit more of a problem with it, except that the, the that he only solves one threat. And that threat was essentially set up more as a force of nature than anything else. The other threats, which were actually considered to be much bigger threats on a personal level, on a on a capability level, were actually solved by the main characters. Mm-hmm. Um so what happened is when all when they had resolved everything else, there was this one last threat that was beyond them. Did you ever see Studio 60? No. Okay. Studio 60 lampooned the idea of a New York City variety show writing team and all of their foibles. And then at one point, I think in the last season, they end up in some legal shenanigans in a small town. And they encounter the judge, who's on a fishing trip and very angry to be dragged back from it. And the judge is John Goodman. Hmm. And John Goodman plays belligerent like few other people. But he plays a belligerent judge who does not share their values, who does not share or appreciate the way they lampoon people like him, and who also takes them to task for it. Not just that they do it, but that they do it poorly. That they do it out of meanness and spite and a lack of understanding. And it's so fascinating because... Here is the implacable, here is the force of nature, the thing they will never change in this world, that they cannot move, they can get around, or they can survive, right? Mm-hmm. But they have to change or find another way to do so. I remember that scene because he plays not the deus ex machina, but the thing that is beyond the realm otherwise for the characters in the world they inhabit. He's yeah, it's similar to the color out of space. It's a thing that arrives here that changes the way they have to be, that they can themselves cannot alter. And as I've said on the show, I'm living through a few of those right now, so they do come to mind. But the presence of these often in the genres of sci-fi, of fantasy, of the of the high I'm struggling with the word because it's not simply metafictional or meta-narrative power, right? It's something more to do with presence. Well, it's a truth. It's a truth of the world. There you go. You, Nick and I were talking last time about what it means to be the emperor of time when you're a fictional character versus when you, as the emperor of time, return to society. And people have to reconcile the you versus the image of you and what you say versus what they believe the myth of you will do. And in this case, the character was a 17-year-old. So, of course, he screws it up because any utterance of his will be deemed prophetic. When you have something that has such narrative truth and weight to it, like Luke and the Mandalorian, the question becomes, where in the river does that stone reside and how does it change accordingly, right? Mm -hmm. Does it push the story toward a bleak or hopeful direction? Does it prevent the narrative from going one way or the other by its nature? And how do we say, if we know this is going to be here in some cases, let's say, you know, it's Star Wars, we know Luke is here, we know he's going to be here to fight that thing because he's not going to tolerate it existing. So we know this will happen. How do we let the other truths of the world story and characters fall into place? How do we reveal that Hitler is a monster to Jojo before he has a fight with his imaginary friend? So that when the moment arrives, it feels 
inevitable. It's clear and we know why. So basically, when you get down to how satisfying an ending is, an ending doesn't exist on its own. Often I've told folks I work with as a storytelling coach, writing fiction and not, you'll know your beginning, your middle or end when it's time and not necessarily in that order. Many folks know the end. They might even know the beginning entirely, but not where the rest of it goes. And that's fine. It's not a given for any particular person which one you'll know at first. But yes, as Dave said, you'll have to be comfortable with not knowing the rest at that moment. Which do you find you tend to know first? It depends a great deal on on what I'm doing at the time. Uh, sometimes I will know like the short term end that I'm that I'm aiming for, but oftentimes I just know moments first, and then I struggle to fit them into a pattern. But like there'll be like this scene is happening, it's too interesting not to happen, and it's got a life of its own. So it's this happening. is real. This is true. There's truth to it. Yeah. But where it's leading, very often that's uh, a hard part because, I don't know, because a lot of times I'm aiming more for character moments than I'm aiming for actual resolution. This this leads me to an interesting point, because I think this is part of what I do as well, to get to the ending, both in narrative and in helping people define their customer journeys as well. Needs, wants, and desires. What do I need right now? What do I want soon? And what do I desire to be? Right? Mm-hmm. Those three things define where the character wants to arrive over the course of a narrative, over the course of scene throughout a chapter, mm-hmm. in your time working with them. If I've come come to you and told you, this is my need, my want, my desire, or you tease that out of me, then the question becomes, does the story help them arrive there? Do they do what they need to to get there, right? Mm-hmm. In that sense, there's usually a very simple yes or no, or a yes and or a no but, if there's a sense of sequels in the risers here. You know, I won't tease the end. Of, I won't say the end of my book, but the answer is a, a no. But no, you didn't get it this time. But here's a way you might, mm-hmm. and that's a change because it was simply before throughout the book no, with a desire for some other way past that. So needs, wants, desires of those in you write when you write characters. Which do you hear first? The immediate, the ones they want most later in time, or something soon but not right now. It's, I don't tend to think in those three terms. I tend to think in, these are what these characters act like. These, it mm-hmm. is, this is what's important to them, but whether it's a need, a want, or a, a, a desire, well, I guess desire would be the first one because it's the one they know that they want. Right, it's the uh, one they can need. tell you. Right. So I'll go with desire on that one. But it's very often, how are these two going to interact? What are they going to give way up on? And what are they not going to give way on? How are they going to affect each other as they each try to get what they want, whether it's as simple or whether it's as complicated as fighting over like a really important thing or as simple as trying to one up each other in a conversation? I was reading an argument the other day about a scene from the television show Monk between Adrian and his brother, where they accuse each other of being either sardonic or sarcastic and using the terminology inaccurately. And then arguing over whether they're using the terminology inaccurately, if I remember right. Correctly. And being both sardonic and sarcastic in the same sentences about it, because that's the nature of those two characters. They are, they are out of Rosencrantz and Guildenstern is dead, mm-hmm. because they're obsessive about everything that doesn't matter, while the rest of the world and the story happens around them, and they end while that goes on. The reason I bring it up is that their immediate needs overwhelmed in that moment everything else they wanted. They might have greater desires, but the needs 
that they need, they they went for in that moment, the petty revenge, the need to one up in this moment to matter more than your rival, to have the higher position, even if ultimately those things won't matter tomorrow or the day after. They matter in this moment more now. So they're going to dominate this scene. And of course, because of that, have consequences later on as well. I honestly find that that's a crucial important, a crucially important part of stories. I've read stories um, where the need or the desire or whatever is meaning. Yes. That, that, that these people are lost. Uh, it's absolutely fine for one or two characters to be that way. But I've read stories where basically the point is that most of the characters are that way. They're looking for something rewarding that they do not have. Um, the problem with that as a story is because you they, because they don't yet have a need, want, or desire, you can't fulfill it. Mm-hmm. It seems like you should be able to by giving them something. Again, one or two, you can certainly do that, having someone find a purpose. But you can't resolve it, the story, if all of them are like that. Right. And importantly, I use need, want, desire. Dave doesn't. Use whatever words work for you. Because they have to be whatever helps you make sense of the way the characters think. These are just my terms for laying out these aspects or truths about the character. And they're not all of the truths, but they're some of the most essential ones. Mm -hmm. I remember a story that was, it was following three people. This was a sci-fi, if I remember correctly... Like one of them was just meandering his way through life. One had become some kind of sentient AI and <laughs> one and one do. had, I don't remember what the third one um, was, but none of them had purpose. And if I remember correctly, the, the, in the end, the, the purposes they found, the AI went off to explore the great unknown. The person who'd be meandering stepped into the role of the AI. I don't, again, don't remember the third person, but it never felt satisfying because, yeah, I could totally see that these could be the character resolutions for these, these characters, but I didn't see anything beyond their need to have something, to have a purpose. So it didn't make, so, so it didn't make sense to me that one of their purpose would, be the, would actually be what the other perp- person wanted as a purpose. You know what um, saves Blade Runner from being a bleak movie? What's that? Rutger Hauer. <laughs> think about it his life is short otherwise meaningless and entirely created it's a facsimile of human existence but he still finds beauty in it you're not real you're not a person you don't matter but i care about the same things you do all of this language and rhetoric and narrative trying to make us think of these people as not people and here's one soliloquy where he lays out time is less but we're no different in the end because he found purpose mm-hmm. He found a thing he needed, he wanted, he desired, and he found a time to express it too, however brief it might have been. That's what saves Blade Runner from being a bleak movie and gives it hope. It's still bittersweet. It, it turns it bittersweet, I would say. Yeah, but there's nothing wrong with that. Hmm. So I think it basically comes down to having, it, like, the, it's not whether one type of ending, uh, like, like in, except with one, one exception, it's not whether one type of ending or another is harder it's really is having a satisfying ending versus it's much easier to have an unsatisfying ending <laughs> than a satisfying ending. But that's the same way that it's much easier to write a bad story than a good one. Because it's easy to lose sight of what is true mm-hmm. on the large scale and the small. And then to find yourself stumbling through to get to where you think you should arrive without knowing what that is. As Mike Nelson of uh, Rift Tracks and MST3K once said, I am not convinced that I should like these characters. 
I'm paraphrasing, but I am not convinced that I should want these characters to succeed just because the movie tells me I should want them to succeed. <laughs> I'm not convinced these characters are moral just because the movie tells me that they are. Although that's a completely different mm-hmm. um, element of storytelling. but And one we should delve into another time, but we do have to wrap up this episode for tonight. Indeed. So any closing statements before we finish up? Because I know we've got a lesson to run into after this. Mm. I would say um, one of your elements of the story must be resolved satisfactory. I, like do you, All stories, all with a satisfying ending, end on a victory. But that victory doesn't necessarily have to be the one you wanted. It could be the victory of a character over change. It could be a victory of a, uh, like, the inevitability that we talked about is the victory of the story over attempts to change it. There's always a victory somewhere, but it's not necessarily the one that you wanted, but something triumphs that needed to triumph. And I will add to that, whether you're writing fiction or not, and particularly if you're working on your customer journeys, if you're working on what the people who read your story, who will buy it, who will share it with others, and what their experience of that will be like, know what they need, want, and desire, where they want to arrive at. That will help you understand the little victories they're hoping to find are. They might not be huge ones. They might just be, I'd like a little joy. I'd like to laugh. I'd like to smile. I'd like to be reminded as Howard did in Blade Runner, that however much time we have, there's still beauty in life. If you guys want to pick up some more lessons, you can go to our... God, I should do a better transition that. I'll let it go this time. It's in well, the, and that, uh, was, that was one of the victories we, we passed up. Sometimes you do have to let things go, yes. Because, and this is a lesson for another time, you can try to put too many things into one scene, one chapter, one moment sometimes. So, until next time, I'm Jared Surf writer, strategist, and your storytelling guide, and... I am David Herman, a.k.a. Remnesis of the Brothers Herman. We'll see you all next time. A good story can excite us, yes. But the best ones, fiction or not, compel, inspire, or drive us toward the hope that we need for a better life. Remember, you don't need to know everything right now, but you do need to write. So make sure to like, review, and subscribe to us at Here Be Tigers. And until next time, take life by the tail. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.